Hello and welcome to another episode of Justice Rising, a podcast where we explore how we can work towards liberation, healing, and transformation one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Samantha Yannity. What is the difference between charity and justice? Sometimes in our earnest attempt to pursue acts of justice, we might lose sight of what accompaniment should look like. On this week's episode, I sit down with Crystal Cordona, who serves as the campus minister for outreach and justice and teaches in the Department of Women, Gender and Ethnic Studies at St. Martin's University. So Crystal, you used to be Jesuit volunteer for. Yes. How did you get started choosing to do Jesuit Volunteer Corps was probably not normal for most students. Most students may know someone that has already done the program. Their campus ministry offices have good connections with the recruiters. So there's a little bit more of a touch point for students to be able to know the programs and be able to discern their options of different post-grad opportunities as well. However, The other way that most students will learn about post-grad opportunities is by doing immersion programs. So I did an immersion program. I attended St. Martin's University in Washington State, and we visited Yakima, which is Eastern Washington. And we met one of the Jesuit volunteer corps, and we had spent a whole week at her placement. And she was at a community center that mostly focused on farm workers' families. And in this center, they they had just like place where they can come together and chat. Maybe work, the kids could work on homework together. So it was just a place for them to gather. And so we were there as students and our professor and our campus minister wanted us to just kind of see how to not really focus on the act of charity, of just doing something for someone else, but really understanding how to build a relationship and being with. My classmates were also there. We're just like, we don't quite understand the difference between charity and relationship quite yet. Like, how does that work? And we were so focused on just doing something. Like, we want to hand out food. We want to hand out clothes. Like, how do we do something? But during our time, we were actually asked to make quilts. So then in their gathering space, the sound would be a little bit easier. So if they're sometimes the moms would come into the community center and actually just practice English. And so they wanted the sound to be a little bit better. So you didn't have the sound up high up. Were these migrant worker families? Is that where they Some were, but not all of them. Some okay. actually had been living there for years, uh, maybe even a couple decades. So some did travel from California, Oregon, and Washington. So they just kind of traveled back and forth on the West Coast. But others w- would be there for years upon years. That was their home base at that point. So we made quilts and we didn't know how to make quilts. I didn't know how to use a sewing machine. None of us knew how to do use a sewing machine, which was pretty funny. Um, luckily, some of us had some smartphones so we could Google and watch YouTube videos on how to use it. I'll be very honest. Maybe our quilts were not the best, but hopefully 
they saw our heart in that and that is one thing that would be something that would be remembered <laughs> and then other than that other than making the quilts they we did go to another community center near a city close to Yakima and they did focus on just English as a second language of all uh, not just Spanish speaking I don't remember the other languages that were also focused there but other people that just spoke another language and were wanting to learn English and so us as students in college visited there and we were just talking in English and just kind of being there to be just present and using our own voices for for the um English for the learners who wanted to learn English to have someone to have a conversational partner and so that was most of our week I'll be very honest when I met the judge of volunteers I was a little confused on the program itself I I did not understand because growing up my family was not affluent so when I heard the volunteers share like oh we eat rice and beans I was just like I grew up eating rice and beans like how is that different how is that you extending yourself in this lifestyle that you're choosing to live a simple life like I did not quite understand why someone would do that um so it was just something that I don't think some people were aware of how their privilege of mm. coming from different backgrounds yeah. specifically from economic backgrounds like not everyone has meat when they eat dinner it, right. typically meat's very expensive or if they do, it's not the most fancy cuts. <laughs> so right. it's just like, what are you eating that maybe isn't normal um, to most people? And rice and beans is maybe something that was very accustomed to me, but not normal to them. And so they thought they were in an act of solidarity with the people they work in being able to also live the lifestyle of simple living because that is part of the values of Jesuit Volunteer Corps, regardless if you're doing Northwest or the national program. Um, so that was one thing that honestly was just like, I don't know if this is for me. Like um, my parents' big ambition for their two daughters was to get educated, have a college degree, get a good job. Good job didn't mean something specific, but it just meant just having a job that would be able to provide for you yourselves. And so doing a year of volunteering probably wasn't the best or <laughs> the most most realistic option because you don't also get a paycheck when you're a volunteer. Right. Uh, you uh, At least with the Judge of Volunteer Corps, you get a stipend. And so all your, your needs are met of like um, housing, transportation, your food, like all of that is met. So like anything that you actually need outside of that would just probably be more in the wants part. And um, that's how I learned about the Judge Volunteer Corps. And then when I actually applied, I just did a Google search. I didn't really know, again, the difference between the two programs. And so the first program that popped up, I thinking it was the same one was Jezreelon here national and I clicked on that I filled out the application and I was just like great 
I'm doing the program. <laughs> um, well, not yet. There's a process, of course. You have to apply. You have to do interviews. You have to make sure you go through discernment process, um, have interviews with the placements. Um, and so it's a, a, lot, a, a lengthy process, but a very valuable process to make sure that it's a good fit for that person. Um, and when you're living in community, I'll be very honest, it's not the most enjoyable time for some people <laughs> because it really pushes you to get outside of your comfort zone and mm-hmm. really live with the, the people you're assigned to live with that you don't often know who they are. Once I got selected to be part of the program, my placement was in Phoenix, Arizona at a single adult shelter. It was the largest in the Maricopa County. The organization is called Central Arizona Shelter Services. And so I was placed in their resource center where I, my role is specifically to help our clients who are experiencing homelessness to find jobs. And so what that meant for my role was to lead weekly workshops on resume, interview skills, some just basic job readiness skills as well. We had a job club in additional that I led, and we worked with clients on a one-on-one basis in addition to the workshops. We collaborated a lot with the case managers there too, like to make sure that we were working together. So we were client centered. We would try to make sure clients were prepared as best as they can, if that meant making sure they practice for interviews, but also making sure that they're able to get to the interview too. Like um, just a simple bus pass can make a big difference to be able to get to a place that they may not have transportation available to them. So that was what I had focused on that whole year in my placement. How long? You had a one-year placement? Mm -hmm. Mine was one-year placement. Uh, The Jesuit Volunteer Corps National, I, I don't know specifically if the Northwest one has an option, but the National one has a international program as well and that one's typically two years but the domestic sites are a year and then if you wanted to extend or you wanted to do an extra year you could apply and then have an extra year. So how did that experience impact you or change your perspective? I think it was a really big learning opportunity I was not unfamiliar to working with people who are experiencing homelessness because in college I did a internship at a family shelter. So working with people that were unhoused was not something um, challenging for me. I, I, I knew the basic challenges that people experienced. Be a listening ear for the clients. I could find and work with them to problem solve of like, oh, like I need to be at this interview at this time. What time should we, should I leave? Like, how can I make sure I'm there? Um, Also learning myself how to network and then teaching someone else how to network um, right after college was very key for myself. And then also to be able to share it to other people. Um, So in the sense of maybe what was different or what was something I learned, 
I think the biggest thing that I thought was so simple was that my supervisor asked me, what is one goal you would like to have in the next three months of you starting here? And I say that it was simple. My goal was because I, I just genuinely didn't know what was a good goal. And my goal, what I had shared with my supervisor was I just wanted to learn people's names that I work with um, and make and make sure that they feel comfortable in the resource center. And she was she was like, hold on, Crystal, you know what you're talking about is Catholic social teaching there, like the dignity of the person, the respect of the person. And I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's so true. Like, I thought it was just such a simple thing. But like, when people are typically ignored in our communities, because Mm -hmm. they are feeling we I'm saying we in the sense of people who have the privilege that live in homes, can afford a home, or even an apartment. Um, we have that privilege that we don't have to worry about where we're going to go to sleep the, tonight or tomorrow. Like, we know that we go home to our place that is our space. And typically in our American society, we, I feel, a collective we have put stereotypes on people that are experiencing homelessness and just be like, well, they're lazy or they're right. fill, fill in whatever other stereotype you want to fill in. Cause we apparently we do have a lot in our American culture that we always hear about. And most often they're not true because the people that are experiencing homelessness typically are unhoused because for example, medical bills, to get laid off of jobs, maybe a divorce, a parent dies, like the list goes on. Or even another population that is also sometimes ignored is young adults that um, identify as LGBT. Like they are a big population that are in typically bigger cities um, and they're unhoused. And so I think if we are able to hold that respect, that human dignity that the Catholic social teaching holds for us, that would go so much longer Mm -hmm. and so much more value for our communities and our society as a whole. And I think that is one thing that I definitely will always keep when I thought it was such a simple goal for myself, but something that was very meaningful. Yeah, putting dignity to someone's name when they're not used to having someone address them. I want to circle back to something that you said earlier when you were describing the immersion experience when you were talking about the word charity. When you're doing justice work, what do you think is the difference between like maybe charity? I think you used the word, was it accompaniment? Yeah, so typically what I try to breakdown service for our students is in three elements so i'll say charity is doing for so you're doing something for someone you're giving a donation you're giving clothes you're giving out a meal maybe some socks whatever it is you're doing something for someone and then the other word is that we use is relationship but accompaniment works perfectly fine The way that we use it is being with so how are you being with that person 
versus of just giving something for someone. And then the last element we actually add is advocacy. And so that element is like, how are we also walking alongside understanding the charity part? And how are we using our voice or supporting someone else's voice to be amplified in that advocacy element? And advocacy is seen in so many different ways. So it's hard to just give one example, but I think we are able to see that throughout our history and currently right now in the nation of like how advocacy is a big element. So that's how I break it down for our students to be able to understand more of our just service in a whole. And it's not to just focus on just charity and charity is not to be forgotten, but it's just how do we do more? If I'm just donating, what else? And the money's always great. Like I'm not trying to neglect uh-huh. the point of like, please donate. Donate's very helpful for a lot of programs because that's how most programs are funded. But I think it's also thinking about it. Why, why are you interested in donating? Maybe that company, that relationship that you're having will help you to also maybe want to do some policy changes. If someone is unhoused, and but you are able to build that relationship and accompaniment that right there, that might be like, oh, I never knew that if you had an eviction notice, you it's very hard for you to get another apartment after that. Or um, if you're applying for a job and you had a criminal record, and you're required to write on your application what what is your criminal conviction that actually happened like 10 years ago it might not put that person up in front in a couple states and now i think a number of years i think it's been five years that have done ban the box and that's happened because of advocacy so it's just like what else can we do as a community to do a little bit more that's such a good point because i think that we forget that it's kind of like when you had that goal for yourself of learning people's names and it's like a simple act but it's applying like the dignity to the person and then when we have that personal connection then we build those relationships with people and it inspires us to take action when there's that personal narrative of all these experiences that you've had what do you think was like the most formative experience I think it's hard to choose, but I will go back a little bit in who I am as a person. Growing up around like middle school up until high school, my mom was a community organizer and she worked at a nonprofit and their organization focused on interfaith work and their issues were broad to be able to focus on what the community wants versus someone just saying, oh, I think you need this. So it's what does the community want? And she was able to work alongside a number of Catholic churches. And now as an adult, I'm thinking back, like seeing how faith is in action, literally, like you're seeing how people come together in prayer, are able to discuss and break down what are some of the challenges they're facing. For example, one of the communities that my mom worked with was to focus on housing and affordable housing. To have affordable housing and people kind of just say, oh, just get a group of 
apartments and just that will be affordable housing. But the problem with that is like people don't have a lot of self-ownership over that apartment. And if we want to build um, generational wealth, an apartment, unfortunately, it doesn't have that much equity versus having a house. Right. The community organizing that my mom had focused on was on the East Bay in California. So like east of like Oakland and San Francisco. And so she had worked with those communities and I I saw how the focus shouldn't be on just apartments, but housing, like actual right. houses. So growing up for me, there was a big boom of construction in the East Bay of California. And so if all of these fancy houses are coming in, why can't we have a few of those houses affordable housing? And their thought was also to broaden the, the the notion of what is affordable. So it was to have for low-income and very low-income families to be able to afford these homes. So they were able to work with the city, get some, um, get a system put in place. And this was like years of work. I'm very simplifying <laughs> the process yeah. here, but it was a lot of work over a number of years. And at the to the end now. I believe they still do this. I'm not positive. No, they had a lottery system. You put in your number. Um, you would say how many people are in your family. And another interesting element was that you had to be living already in that city. So it wasn't a person that was living outside of the city and coming in and be like, I want to live here. Like you had to already be living in that city to be able to qualify. So they wanted people from the actual community to keep living in that community, not be like, pushed out because they couldn't afford it so the homes the weren't were very outside you could see them they looked exactly the same as everybody else's home the inside maybe didn't have the fanciest appliances um but it had the same structure um and i think that was a way that they were able to be like okay in the long term, this family will be able to still have that equity of this home if they were um, to ever move somewhere. But I believe, now I'm trying to remember a little bit of details, that it also had to be that it had to be sold to another family that was um, looking for affordable housing. It couldn't just be oh, to another. Sell it for profit? Mm -hmm. like, okay, for a higher buyer? Yeah, so... In that way, it was to be able to keep the home in that same, so that way they're able to keep it in that same family bracket of financial affordability. But then they're also keeping that generational um, wealth between mm -hmm. those communities. Yeah, but I, I, again, this was when I was in middle school and high school, so I don't remember all the details. <laughs> this is just the details that I remember of it. And that's kind of what inspired me to be in the line of work that I do of, of really valuing social justice to the core and how faith is integrated with that. Wow. How has that shaped the work that you do now? What are, what are some of the things that you're working on now? So now I work in campus ministry, actually at the school I had graduated from, from undergrad. Comes full circle. It okay. does. <laughs> so um, as I just previously mentioned, I grew up in California and then I came up to college for 
I mean, at St. Martin's University in Washington State. And as you shared, it comes full circle. Yes, now I'm back at St. Martin's in campus ministry. And my role is to focus as a campus minister to focus on service, justice, and another element is trying to see how students are engaging in that as well. Like, how are they engaging in service? How are they engaging in justice? And how is faith also intertwined through all of that? So that is currently what I do now. Um, it is definitely a learning experience to kind of see how to how to see what students are interested in and having their passions be full center of what they do, which is amazing. I think students are already very eager to create change and have that change happen and be involved. Their their, their voices are being heard and they're, they're doing what they can to be able to be a participant in their communities, which is another element of Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we forget that, that we're active members of us, not onlookers or spectators that we're fully interwoven. Mm-hmm. What is a hope or a dream that you would have for either your students or like the next generation doing social justice work? Well, that's a great question. As I'm working in higher ed now, a hope is I hope students are not leaving with a lot of student debt. Our university is a majority serving of students of color, about, I believe, a little over 50% at this point. Wow. And a number of their students are on scholarships. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're working really hard to be able to make it affordable for students to attend a private Catholic institution, which is pretty hard um, to do. Um, But my hope and dream is that um, cause you and I both have a lot of student debt. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, and, <laughs> uh, I feel like at this point, it's not a secret. <laughs> I think we are the Amer- are like American society as a whole values education, formal education, I should say. Um, and a way to do that is going to college. However, what is the accessibility in finance, but also once you get here? Um, so what is accessible for the student to even succeed once they even get here? So even if they go to a different school or they're going here, um, no school is perfect, but being able to know those places where they feel comfortable, um, to be able to ask questions, to be able to find people that look like them, that, um, have similar backgrounds, so they don't feel out of place or feel like they don't belong, because unfortunately that does happen a lot, and then some students do leave with a lot of student debt and no diploma um, because they're like, I didn't fit in. Uh, that wasn't a place for me. And this is, again, any any school in our nation, this this happens. Yeah. I think it think- happens a lot more in um, private education, too, as well, because mm-hmm. of the costs. Um, and my response earlier that, wow, when you gave the percentage, um, cause you said it was like about 50% of, yeah, it's a little color. over 50% at this point. Yeah. And it's, most of them are also first generation students. So their parents have not gone to college either. And right. they're the first in their family to go to college. And so being able to have that, that's um, a big, resource, big deal. Mm-hmm, 
that resource to be able to ask your parent, like, oh, how do I fill out the FAFSA? Most often, unfortunately, it's not their parent that they're asking help from. They're asking maybe a teacher or uh, like a counselor from their school or someone else that can help them navigate the system um, to be able to know how to answer the questions that they're being asked before they even get here. And then my thing is also make it affordable, but then also make it accessible. Like right. once they're affordable. here, like one uh, of our programs that I also run is our immersion program. And my biggest thing is like, yeah, we can do these great trips and they're very valuable, but at the same time, are they also financially ac accessible for our students? Or is it just for a certain kind of student that can go on these trips? So also having that in mind and knowing that these trips are also can be pretty pricey. So making sure that we can have affordable pricing for our students to be able to um, attend and or what is other ways for the student to get funding to be able to join these programs as well. And I'm talking about immersion specifically, but it's also thinking about studying abroad or any other extra things that you do within your programs as a college student that costs money still, like even though you're here, right. <laughs> whatever here is and whatever college you're at, you still have other additional costs that you still have to pay for. The high cost and there's a lot of privilege in that. Like you mentioned with um, JV, when people are like talking about simple living and, and not realizing the lens of privilege that they have, even in, in service. This is another follow-up question. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking a lot of the student population. Do you, do you think the student population, I, I think particularly like in Catholic um, colleges, it's overwhelmingly white, right? I don't know like what the population breakdown in like this part of Washington, but it's like overwhelmingly white. I imagine with a 50% POC population, student population, that they might not feel 100% reflected or represented in their either student population or in their state. Do you think that's true or? I think to an extent that is true. Washington State, it's been a while since I looked this up recently, but I don't think it's a secret. It's a majority white state. Um, However, we have a number of pockets around the West. Uh, I'm going to specifically point out on the West part of Washington because we both live on the West part of Washington, but this is not just a reflection of the West uh, part of Washington. Eastern Washington can be pretty diverse as well, um, but we're living on the West part. And so there are a number of different immigrants from different countries also, a number of reservations of indigenous tribes around Washington. Um, so there are, there is, I should say, there is diversity here. And that's not to neglect the thought of who's already here in the state, too. There's, there's diversity in different ways that we, not, we might not imagine it. And so to answer your question about that you were asking of the reflection of that, I think overall, most universities, regardless if it's private or public, most often it is white individuals going to school. Like it's more typical thing. However, due to the statistics now and that we're able to see, like most often now we're seeing more women 
going to college. And I don't think that's a new thing. I think that's been a a long time trend that's been very, very visible. It's not something new. But one thing that I will say that's somewhat new, again, this is also not that new, is that the trend is also showing um, women of color that are also attending universities. Um, Most often, I don't think it's a secret that most often a lot of Catholic schools do are predominantly white. Even when I came to St. Martin's and also attended Loyola University in Chicago, there were predominantly white programs that I was in, being sometimes one of the only Latina women in the class. Like it's in social justice and mostly white faculty too. Yes. Um, So one of my colleagues always asks this question when she's talking about diversity is think to your experience. When was the first time you saw someone that looked like you as a teacher in grade school in college in, in what setting? Where did you see your first teacher that looked like you? Most often, if it's a white person, they see them in kindergarten. It's not even a, a question. They're like, oh, they're, they're right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some uh, other people um, of color, typically that is not the first time they see someone that looks like them. And she actually even mentioned when she explains the story for herself that it's just like she didn't see someone until like her doctorate program. Doctorate program. Mm-hmm. That's a long chunk of your life to not see someone that looks like you in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And for me, I am, I, I already mentioned I'm Latina. I, I feel like some kids that have maybe similar backgrounds as me, uh, we can say, like, oh, well, maybe our Spanish teacher. However, I feel like that technically doesn't count. Mm. And also, you have to think about how diverse is the community that you're living in, too. Like, most often that will show, like, who you see in the classroom as well. So this it, this might not be for everyone's problem, but just some people do experience this more often than not, that they don't see someone that looks like them. So for me, if I don't count my Spanish teacher in high school, then I would say probably graduate school. That was when I wow. saw the first male who's Latino, as a professor. And that wasn't even a Latina woman. And so um, I think it's just kind of interesting. How is it accessible for students? Even, uh, I won't, I don't think it's a secret. Our students are always talking about this, that they want faculty and staff that look like them um, in the classrooms. And this is not just a problem where I work. It's a problem probably in any other institution that you encounter is, who is who is teaching in those universities and who gets access to teach in those universities? Um, how are they prepared to be able to have those positions and not belittled and be like, well, do you really want to do that? It's a lot of work. Are you sure? Maybe do this instead. Mm-hmm. So I think I think sometimes some some people um, have some challenges that they're encountering that aren't the easiest challenges um, and get maybe persuaded to do a different field or something. And right now I'm talking about specifically education, but this is not limited to just education. It could be right. pretty much any field. Like all of the systems that we have in place, it's like reimagining what kind of world look like if it, it were more 
equitable or equitable, diverse, inclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you, and you said before, accessible. Accessibility is what what keeps people from achieving what they want to achieve and accessing what they deserve to have. Yeah, I think some students are afraid to ask questions because they feel like, well, what is that person going to think of me if I do ask this question? Mm. Because of the ideas assumed on what the expected knowledge that you should already have coming into college. I'll I'll talk about myself in this example. Like, uh, I knew I needed to fill out the FAFSA, but I didn't know how to fill out the FAFSA. So I had to figure that out on my own. And then making sure I knew what was the difference between scholarships and loans. For some people, this is not difficult. They get it. They know how to answer those questions perfectly fine. But for me, I didn't have anybody in my immediate family that had uh, gone to college other than my sister. She was already in her first year of college when I, oh, excuse me, she was already in her second year of college when I was in my first year of college. So she did. She was. She was able to answer some questions for me, but she was also trying to figure it out for herself too. Right. Hard. <laughs> so, like, trying to figure it out of like the difference between loans, grants, and scholarships, and then also once you're here, knowing like what are office hours, what is how how should you, I I don't know how should you inform a professor if you're gonna miss class and make sure that you get the makeup work. If you have gone to a public school, maybe that's not something that's so normal to you, like going to office hours. Maybe it is. I don't I don't know. Things probably have changed now. <laughs> but when I was in school, I didn't feel like office hours were a thing for me. So knowing how to use that and knowing how important it was to use those office hours is very key. And one last thing I'll even say about accessibility that is tied with identity is mental health. Like. Right. It's a lot of pressure to go to college. And then once you're here, as you've already shared, like most institutions are predominantly white. And so, and I don't want to limit it to just as identity within race or ethnicity. I don't want to limit it to that because there are other identities that are rising once you're in college that you're trying to figure out too. Like there's so many things that you're trying to figure out as a young person of like, who am I? How do I fit in? How do I not fit in? Like, maybe right. I don't want to fit in, and that's fine. And those pressures can be a lot. And so if you feel like you're dealing with that by yourself, is is can be very, very mentally draining. And so reaching out to have mental help, uh, of, and that's not a bad thing. I think some right. cultures maybe see it as like, oh, well, what is wrong with you then? Like... Mm-hmm. what you is there something really wrong with you then you, you you're going to get help for for that simple problem just don't be depressed be be happy choose to be happy and just like sometimes you can't choose to be happy there's other chemical imbalances sometimes it has to be medication there's a whole bunch of other things that are happening that a simple answer of just choosing to be happy is not the answer and so I think Having the understanding to be able to ask for help in mental health too um, and having the resources to feel comfortable to do that is is a lot too. And I, again, I don't think this is limited to specifically identity as um, race and ethnicity. I think it gets heightened there, but there's a lot of intersection of different identities that are having these challenges as well of, again, I go back to 
how do I fit in or how do I not fit in? Sometimes people don't want to fit in. That's okay too. Like <laughs> own who you are and be who you are and know that that deserves the respect and dignity of who that person is. Again, I'll just reiterate this fact one more time. Some cultures don't understand the importance of mental health and that is very important once you do go to college not feel that loneliness part about it and even right now with covid like we're still in a pandemic so like how are you also reaching out to make sure that you're doing okay and students have that additional challenge that they are going to school while we still are still in a current pandemic so like that's still an additional thing that is challenging for some students Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is a work of Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center in Seattle, Washington. IPJC is sponsored by 24 religious congregations. We act for justice in the church and in our world. If you would like to see more work like this, go to ipjc.org and consider supporting our mission. Make sure to hit that subscribe button for our podcast and to hear more conversations like this wherever you listen. Tune in next time.